Thank you, Pastor George. Good morning again. Well, you know, know, bringing home a newborn is a wonderful joy. We've had a lot of babies in our church over the last month. But, you know, bringing home the second baby is a bit more complex, mainly because you don't know how the first one is going to react. Sarah Beth and I were talking about it this last week, and we remembered when our second was, when we were expecting our second, and we just got hung up on all the YouTube videos where firstborns meet their new baby brother or baby sister as they come home from the hospital. Because every once in a while, they'd take one look at the baby and they'd say, take it back. And you can understand why. I mean, a new baby means their position in the family is threatened. And it's not just kids who feel this. What about when a new student comes and shows up in your class? Or a new employee arrives at the office? Are they a threat to you? Will you be a friend or a foe to them? That's a bit of the tension that we feel here in today in 1 Samuel 18 through 20. And friends, this is a long section of Scripture. Hopefully you were able to read it before or earlier this week. Maybe you woke up at 5 a.m. just to start reading it. But I want to encourage you to do so so you can hear the story in full. But what's happening in these three chapters is pretty simple. David has arrived. The new guy is here. And the narrator then puts before us two people, a father and a son, who see the same thing going on. They both see that God is with David, and David is going to be the next leader of Israel. And they both have a lot to lose. The kingship for both Saul and Jonathan is at stake. And what we find is that Saul will do everything in his power to oppose what God is doing. Well, remarkably, Jonathan embraces it. Jonathan, who should have been David's rival, instead embraces him as a friend. So the question the text asks of us today is when God is at work, or will you oppose it? Or embrace it? Do you oppose it or embrace it? Our task this morning is going to be pretty simple. I, I just want to walk through the story. The, 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 uh, walk through the story, noticing what leads to Saul's opposition, how Saul's opposition is futile, and the remarkable embrace by Jonathan. Let's begin today by reading together just the first nine verses of chapter 18. So if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Samuel 18, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. 
And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. These first nine verses really propel the rest of the narrative. It starts with this deep friendship between Jonathan and David, which also ends with chapter 20, tying this whole section together. But everything in the middle, starting with verse 6, shows the growing enmity that Saul has for David. But how does it start? Why would Saul hate this guy who just rescued them from Goliath? Well, that's our first point. Saul's opposition begins with envy. The church fathers wrote that Saul is the epitome of envy. Chrysostom even says, he'll talk about how envy has warped Saul's heart and dulled his mind, leading him to destruction. It's a devastating thing. But what is, what is envy? Because you see, envy is a little bit different than jealousy or greed or even coveting. Envy might desire something that someone else has, but the envier doesn't just want an object that someone else has. They actually find delight in the way of the removal of that object of possession affects their rival's position and how gaining it does something to their status over others. And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like the difference between wanting a new BMW because you love cars, you value you know, the driving performance or whatever that BMWs have, the difference between that and wanting a BMW because it will make you feel superior over your neighbor who just bought a new Camry. It's not so much the car that makes you green with envy, but what the car says about who you are and the respect and admiration that it delivers. So with that in mind, look again at verse 6 and following. And this is right after David kills Goliath. People are rejoicing in the streets and the song on their lips. Saul has struck down thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul gets angry at their rejoicing. Why would he do that? Notice, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me, you see that? And to me, they ascribe thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Rebecca DeYoung, in her book, Glittering Vices, writes that the envious person resents another person's good gifts because they are superior to his or her own. It's not just that the other person is better. It is that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority more, complete, more acutely. Saul was envious. The bottom line for Saul was how he stacked up against David because Saul measured his self-worth comparatively. He couldn't stand someone else receiving praise that he thought he should have received that he deserved, that he'd had before. And so we get to verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day on. You've heard of the evil eye? This, this is it. And so it's, it's unsurprising that in verse 10, a harmful spirit comes on Saul and he's raving like a madman in the house. I mean, I just imagine him screaming and flailing about. And for some reason, the madman has a spear in his hand. And in a nervous or envious rage, he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. Then in verse 12, the narrator gives us the inside scoop. And this is a little bit of behind-the-scenes information for us readers. 
that Saul doesn't know yet, but by the end of chapter 18, he will know. The narrator tells us that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Because David is going to be king, and Saul is not. Saul was no longer God's anointed, and the outcome was beginning to show all around him as everyone begins to love David. The Lord was at work through David, and people were starting to take notice. Saul and Saul, he could not embrace what God was doing because of the envy of his own heart. Notice how envy and fear go together here. I mean, to the envier, the world is a zero-sum game. So if someone has what they need, then all they can feel is lack and panic, a gripping fear that takes hold of them as they consider their own lack and inferiority. And in the end, Saul opposed God's work because his heart was ruled by envy. His own self-worth and self-esteem were wrapped up in how he compared to others. He was envious of David's popularity and success. And so similarly, we need to start there with our own self-examination. We too must watch out for the grip of envy on our own hearts so that it doesn't blind us to what God might be doing. But how does envy present itself in our own lives? I mean, you may have never tried to run someone through with a spear, but I'm sure that envy has come into your heart. I mean, in Galatians 5, Paul lists envy with the ways of this world that we are to flee. But to flee it, we first have to recognize it. So, so what can we do? A couple examples. First, do you ever find yourself wishing ill will toward others? And before you say no, think about the places you work. Imagine for a second, you enter the office of your recently promoted colleague. They've got the new computer. Maybe they're wearing a new suit jacket. They're talking about the new high-level meetings that they get to attend, how well things are going. You want to be happy for them. But you sort of want to just push them out the window. Do you find it hard to praise others at work because you're worried your praise will just add to their already high value and make you look bad in comparison? Or do you even find yourself getting pleasure out of others' difficulties or distress? Maybe an old college friend who seemed to just succeed at everything while, others, while things came more difficult to you. You hear they finally have encountered some difficulty, whether at work or family life, and for some reason, you feel a little pleasure. Because for some reason, their trouble makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. Friends, this is envy. Let me give another example. Do you ever read false motives into others' behavior? Again, before you say no, Turn and look at your spouse. Married couples. Have you ever felt that your spouse, ever failed to give your spouse the benefit of the doubt? You're just convinced that they're trying to take you down. They're trying to make you look bad. Or, are you the spouse who is trying to make your spouse look bad? Because you want your kids to love you more. 
You want your friends to think that you're the better partner in this marriage. This is envy. Envy is devious. And it may seem small or insignificant, but if we aren't careful, it will grow like a cancer in your heart. Saul's opposition to God began with envy, and this same envy can infect us as well. First destroying us from the inside, but next creating enemies with others in our lives and ultimately with God. Which leads to our next point. Saul's envy produces an enemy. Envy usually leads to secrecy and deception, trying to take down a rival without actually opposing them. And Saul's no different. Saul's first plan involves his eldest daughter, Merab. Saul says to David, I'll give her to you if you'll just fight the Lord's battles. But the narrator, again, gives us a little inside scoop. He gives us a window into what Saul was really thinking. Because Saul hopes this will draw David into more battles where the Philistines would kill him. So he doesn't have to raise his hand against David. Someone else can do the dirty work for him. The envious person always thinks their devious plans are secret. But here we're reminded that nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Well, at the last minute, Saul decides to give his eldest daughter to someone else, again showing just his downward spiral. But he's not done because he's got another daughter and he can try again. Saul would not win the best dad of the year. But at least this time, his daughter, Michael, loves David. However, this union comes with a catch, a task for David, a bride price. David has to kill 100 uncircumcised Philistines because Saul thought, surely he'll fall in pursuit. I mean, just one stray arrow, one sword stroke, all it's got to take. And yet, David's pattern of success continues. He goes above and beyond, killing 200 Philistines. This time, Saul goes ahead and gives Michael in marriage. And now, David is not just some commander, but is the king's very son-in-law. Part of the royal family. And it's in this moment that Saul's eyes finally see and understand that the Lord is with David. He's going to be king. And as his plans to undermine his rival prove unsuccessful, the more his bitterness intensifies and his resentment grows. So that at the end of this chapter, we read that Saul was David's enemy continually. Because envy creates enemies. It's a downward spiral, and we haven't even reached the end of it yet. As John Chrysostom writes, envy, as a moth gnaws a garment, so doth envy consume a man. It takes you to places you never thought you'd go. To do things you never thought you'd do. Use your daughters as pawns. Try to kill your best commander. Unthinkable things. But for Saul, his envy had led him to be enemies with David, but that wasn't just it. Because he's not just enemies with David. He's enemies with the man whom God is with. He's enemies with God himself. Saul is now enemies with God and God's work. And being enemies of God is a futile endeavor. Which leads us to chapter 19. In every good science fiction uh, movie, at some point you hear the words, resistance is futile. Of course, then they resist, and anyways, 
Resistance is futile. And that's the message of chapter 19, and it's true here. Saul's opposition is futile. Saul's secretive schemes to kill David don't work out as planned. And so he abandons all subtlety and openly attacks David. I mean, the whole episode is like watching a madman wondering what he's going to do next. Chapter 19 then involves four attacks and four rescues, culminating in a showdown between Saul and the very Spirit of God. First, Saul tells all his servants, including Jonathan, that they should kill David. I mean, to Saul's mind, David has to die. He's got to die. There's just one problem. Jonathan delights in David. So he takes it upon himself to advocate for David. How's how's he going to do that? Can you imagine uh, going to confront your father or even a close friend uh, that what they're getting ready to do is sin? On top of that, we already know Saul's a little crazy and you never confront a crazy man. Friends, Jonathan has got to be one of the the most underrated characters in all of the Bible. He is remarkable. Here we see him successfully advocate for David and confront his father about his potential sin. Jonathan starts with the positive. He helps his father remember David's good work, how he rejoiced when David killed Goliath. Then he helps him see how killing David would be a sin against innocent blood. And remarkably, Saul listens and swears never to kill David. And we might think, great, relationship restored. David's back, back in, in the presence of Saul once again. Jonathan, the hero, rides off and has a successful career as a mediator throughout the land of Israel. It's not what happens. War comes again. And once again, David is successful in battle. And old envy rears its head again. David is in Saul's presence with a lyre in his hand, an instrument, across from Saul, who has a spear in his hand. It's like deja vu. Same tune, different spear. And once again, David escapes. But this time, Saul's Saul's not done. Saul pursues him, or he sends people to pursue him all the way home. He's going to get him. This is it. David's wife, Michael, tells him he's got to leave or be killed. So she helps set a ruse to make the messenger, or assassins really, think he's sick in bed while he escapes through a window. And when Saul finds out, he's shocked. How could his daughter deceive him? But there's one more rescue, one more rescue that reveals the heart of this conflict. David flees to Samuel and tells Samuel everything that Saul's doing probably a little upset that Samuel anointed him in the first place. Well, Saul finds out where David is. He sends messengers. He's got to send three sets of messengers because each time they come near to Samuel and his prophets, they forget their task and they start prophesying. I mean, we don't really know what this is. It's probably something like some loud singing or something like that, what this prophesying is. The point is, that Saul stands at the head of an army more powerful than anything Saul had. Which leads ultimately to Saul coming himself. And what we find becomes the complete opposite, complete reversal of when Saul came into his kingship in chapters 9 through 11. And if you remember this, this is a complete reversal. Saul comes to Ramah. He asks for directions to Samuel. 
He's overcome by the Spirit once again and prophesies once again. But this time, instead of people marveling at him, they seem to be joking. Is Saul among the prophets? Why, why, why might they be joking, I say? Last time the Spirit came on Saul, it gave him authority, and people marveled at it. This time, Saul comes, and the Spirit strips him of authority, and people joke. Is he among the prophets? Is he prophesying his own downfall? This time the Spirit comes on Saul and removes his authority. It removes his royal robes and leaves him naked, lying in the dirt, shamed and humiliated. On the one hand, it's a witness to where envy leads. Envy promises status and favor, but it leads to total destruction and shame. It may seem small, but its ends are dire. But more importantly, we learn that nothing, nothing can stop the will of God. During the American Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln is said to have been asked whether God was on his side of the conflict. To which Lincoln famously replied, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. You see, Saul's story is a sad reminder that God cannot be overcome or forced onto our own side or according to our own will. Rather, we must embrace God's side and submit to his designs, trusting him to direct our paths. So what can we do? What's the solution to envy and the corruption that leads to choosing our own will over that of God's? Let's now turn to the example of Jonathan. Found in the beginning of chapter 18 and also all of chapter 20. really ties this whole thing together. Because, you know, by all accounts, Jonathan and David should be rivals. We often think they're maybe the same age, but really given when Jonathan was leading armies early on and that David didn't take over until he was 30, Jonathan was probably 10 or 20 years older than David. And Jonathan should feel every bit as threatened by David as his father does. And they're essentially working for the same promotion. Who is going to be the next king? And yet, rather than being a foe, Jonathan is the ideal friend. Chapter 18, verse 1 says that Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But it's more than that, isn't it? Friendship alone can't account for what happens next. Because not only does Jonathan love David, he removes his royal robe, his armor, sword, bow, and gives them to David. And he disrobes before David. It's a weird episode. And you probably looked at it like, what in the world is going on? That's why I don't read the Old Testament. No. It's what's happening is one of the most significant things that's happening in this text. What Jonathan is doing is symbolic of royal abdication. He's symbolically giving his seat of the throne on the throne to David. Just as Saul was stripped of his royal robes, stripped of his authority, David removes his robe and all his garments of war and gives them to David as a way of saying, you are the king and now I serve you. In chapter 23, he's going to make it explicit. You're going to be the king. My dad knows it. I know it. What's happening here is Jonathan is not just the ideal friend, 
He's the ideal disciple. It is nothing less than faith. Jonathan sees David and he thinks, in this man, God is at work to save his people. And if I want to be a part of it, I've got to get off the throne. I have to become less so that he can become more. It's the polar opposite of envy. It's the selfless nature that characterizes Jonathan, and it is an example for us today. So I want to look at Jonathan in these two ways, the ideal friend and disciple. Jonathan, first, Jonathan's the ideal friend. I mean, friendship's fallen on hard times. You know, this sort of deep spiritual friendship and affection between Jonathan and David, it's rare today. Jonathan shows us how to relate to one another, and in so doing, works to break the hooks of envy on our own hearts. Let me list three quick characteristics of an ideal friend. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite books by Drew Hunter, he lists six. I'm just doing three. Anyway, first, Jonathan loved David as his own soul. What does this mean? At the most basic level, it means to enjoy one another's company. I mean, do you have those people in your life where you just, just being around them is a joy? I mean, we're told Jonathan loved David and delighted in David. And at the end of chapter 20, when David had to leave, Jonathan wept at his loss. They both wept on each other. It's the way it's actually depicted. It's like who's trying to outweep the other. Says David outwept him more. Manly crying. The author Drew Hunter writes, Jonathan and David model how to express strong affection and admiration between friends. Our generation needs to recapture something of this deeply felt and sincerely expressed bond of love. But this love isn't just affection. Notice it means seeking the other person's good and well-being, and in so doing, finding delight in it. I mean, it's on this basis of love we read that they create a covenant, which is really just an agreement between two people that they agree to seek one another's good and not to kill their kids later on. You see, their friendship wasn't a consumer friendship. It was a covenant one. Often we go looking for friends to meet our needs. Right? That's a consumer relationship. That's a consumer friendship. But Jonathan and David show us that to have a friend, you have to be a friend first. You have to commit to one another through thick and thin, seeking the good of the other over yourself. And in fact, actually delighting when the other succeeds. It's the first key to friendship. Whereas envy creates enemies, love creates friends. All right, second, Jonathan trusted David. You can't have a relationship without trust. Let's jump to this lengthy story in chapter 20. Here David flees to Jonathan and says, your dad's trying to kill me again. And Jonathan can hardly believe it. I mean, his dad swore to him that he would not kill David. So they devise a plan to once and for all know the heart of King Saul. And it's really from this point. Uh, after, after chapter 20, the division is drawn. The battle lines are done. The separation has come. But they're in a precarious position. I mean, David is putting himself in Jonathan's hands and being completely vulnerable with him, with his speech, but also with his own life. This could only happen if they trusted one another. They had a friendship built on trust. Lastly, the Lord was between them. Twice in chapter 20, we read the remarkable words that the Lord is between Jonathan and David. What does this mean? I mean, what what is it that truly binds people together? 
Because often you usually develop friends in the pursuit of something else, right? I mean, one person says, I love the Chiefs. And you respond, I love the Chiefs too. And a bond is formed of mutual love for the Chiefs. And look, while the Chiefs rarely let you down, they will let you down. And then what happens in the offseason? Or, you know, heaven forbid, if the team was disbanded. Maybe you'd find something else to bond over with your friend. But the point is, there's something that binds us. And here we see that the everlasting Lord binds David and Jonathan. A bond that will never end. And the truest friends, the truest friends, are those who have the Lord between them. Do you have friends like that? I mean, this is why the church is often called a community of friends. People who have the single most important thing in common. The Lord who keeps and sustains. True friendship expands our lives and makes life more enjoyable. And when we pursue it, it we loosen envy's hold, loosen envy's hooks on our heart. But Jonathan isn't just an ideal friend. He's the ideal disciple. Because David wasn't just a friend. He was the future king. And Jonathan points to how we are to respond to the anointed king Jesus. Jonathan teaches us how to follow our own Lord. How? Two things. First, we realize that the ideal disciple takes themselves off the throne. And we've already observed this in Jonathan and David's first encounter. Uh, but it's reiterated in the story as the story continues in chapter 20. Uh, Jonathan and David come up with a plan and they renew their covenant with one another. And in verse 13, Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. In other words, may the Lord be with you because you're the king. What Jonathan did symbolically in removal of his robe, he now is saying expressly, and he'll even reiterate again in chapter 23, He's saying that the anointing of God has truly been given to David. You are king, and I serve you. In a similar way, we have to surrender the throne of our life to Christ. Because today, we're the masters of our own domain. We're the king of our own lives. But like Jonathan, we have to give up our pretended rights to rule. We are to proclaim Jesus as our Lord and King and not just with words, but with our lives. And if you've never looked to Jesus as your Lord, I want to invite you to do so today. Or maybe you did, but lately you've kind of been putting yourself back on the throne, doing things according to your own will, your own designs. I want to invite you today to turn from that, step down. Give up the authority to Christ. Because when you try to be the ruler of your own life, you won't get very far. Envy will creep up in your heart. You'll always be caught comparing yourself to everyone around you. And the only way to true life is to stop trying to rule it. Stop trying to take control and start following God's chosen king. We need to bind our future to his. Because in this very act of self-renunciation, we gain a future and a hope. In David and Jonathan's covenant, Jonathan 
is asking that David would preserve his future. In the past, a new king comes, they kill off all the family so that no one comes and reigns, uh, tries to take him from the throne. Jonathan's saying, don't do that. And when he does that, when he gives up his throne and entrusts it to David, he actually creates a future for his descendants, which is the remarkable story found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Remarkable story. At its core, discipleship is about following Christ the King and not ourselves. So will you oppose him by following your own rule or will you embrace Jesus? And second, lastly, the ideal disciple endures the cost. You see, Jonathan's decision to follow David is no easy believism. I mean, there is a real cost. We find that Jonathan carries out the plan to know his father's will toward David, and it's clear there's no reconciliation this time. Saul's out for blood. He calls David a son of death. And this time, his anger is also kindled toward Jonathan. He curses Jonathan. He, he even curses Jonathan's mother. And when you bring someone's mother into an argument, mm-mm, I heard it. That's not good. Then the key verse is in 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives, he won't even call him David, he'll only call him the son of Jesse. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Here it is. Jonathan knows the cost. Saul knows the cost. They know that if David lives, it means losing prestige, power, honor, losing the throne, and everything that comes with it. David lives. So what are you going to do? But it's not just that. It's not only losing the throne. Jonathan also suffers the wrath of his father. Because just like with David, Saul now hurls his spear at his son, seeking to extinguish the very thing he said he was trying to save. And you can almost hear Jesus' words in the background, right? Don't be surprised when they persecute you. They persecuted me first. But Jonathan was willing to suffer the wrath of his father for his Lord. The episode ends with Jonathan and David weeping. Another heartache to endure. But Jonathan is willing to endure the cost for his Lord and King that he loves above everything else this world has to offer. He loves his Lord more than anything else the world has to offer. He's an example for us today to have that same affection towards Christ, to, to remove everything else that this world has to offer. We're celebrating uh, Reformation Sunday today. Martin Luther, who, who we sang his hymn, stands in front of everyone. He says, Here I stand, I can do no other. I cannot deny my Lord and His Scripture. No matter what you may do to me, you've killed all the others that have come before me. In this very kind of disputation uh, trial, they were put to death. I will be too. doesn't matter. He would not turn his back on his God and on his word, and we are encouraged to do the same today. Because Jonathan is the ideal disciple that shows us what it means to truly follow Christ.
to count the cost, to endure the cost, whatever it might be, whether it's persecution or whether it's just a renunciation of things that you could have if you chose a different path. That's what cost means to Jonathan. It doesn't exactly mean persecution. It means the loss of power, honor, and prestige. In Matthew 27, 18, Pilate reveals that it was out of envy that the people delivered Jesus to be killed. Envy leads the Jews to oppose God's anointed, Jesus Christ. Because when it came down to it, they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted to keep themselves on the throne of their lives and in the city. They didn't want to suffer the persecution the Romans might bring. They acted like Saul. Sons of Saul. But Jonathan gives us a different picture. An example worth following. An example of one who answers Jesus' call in Mark 8, 34 and 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. If you're like Saul and you try to preserve your life, you will lose it. But if you follow Jonathan's example and lose your life for the sake of your Lord and his gospel, it will be saved. So are you determined to cling to power like Saul? To be racked with envy towards others, always comparing yourself, always at a loss, always trying to get ahead? Or are you content to trust your future to Jesus and let him be the Lord of your life? Please pray with me. Lord, in the simple act of praying, we acknowledge your power. May we also follow it by laying our lives before you. Help us to see the patterns of envy in our own heart, root them out, and show us a better path love, discipleship, selflessness. We take ourselves off the throne of our lives. Stop comparing ourselves with everyone else and turn to follow you each and every day. For it's in the name of Christ, our Lord, that we pray. Amen.